This program is part of the Cosmic Potato Podcast Network. For more shows like this, visit our website at CosmicPotato.com. Welcome back, everyone, my Prime Direction listeners. Can, can I call you Primers? That's a bad name. I'm not going to go with it. Um, but regardless of what we call you, uh, you are all my Star Trek fandom family. And and I love all of you listeners, and I really apologize that it's been so long since a new episode has come out. Um, I do have uh, one episode that is uh, waiting on an edit. Uh, we have this episode here, and I'm hoping to get more scheduled soon. Uh, long story short, there are a lot of things going on outside of the podcasting world that are making it very difficult for me to uh, make new episodes at this time. Uh, it was poor timing, and uh, there's... Not a whole lot really that can be done about it. Perhaps one of these days I'll share it on the show, but uh, it's not really Star Trek related, so I don't know if anyone's going to want to hear it. Um, eventually you'll read about it on Twitter, so if you follow me there, then you'll you'll figure it out soon. But that's not the reason that we're here. We're here right now to start an actual new episode. Now you're going to notice right away that this is not your average Prime Direction episode. This is, in fact, a crossover episode with another show right here on the Cosmic Potato Network, The Landing Party, which is a Star Trek-focused podcast that generally discusses uh, new Trek content, so uh, new episodes of Discovery. When Picard begins airing, uh, that'll be discussed. Uh, Recently, an episode was released discussing the Picard and Discovery trailers that were released um, at New York Comic Con, as well as the two short Treks that have already been released for this season. Uh, This episode... We are crossing over with the landing party and their host, former host of this very show, Sean Ray, and he and I had a chance to talk with renowned, wonderful, brilliant, and New York Times best-selling Star Trek author David Mack. He was fantastic. Um, we had uh, about an hour to sit down and talk with him. Uh, I have not heard the edit of the interview. Uh, Uh, Sean did the editing for the interview, and I'm just recording bumpers for my version. Uh, This interview will be released as an episode of The Landing Party as well, with, I would assume, a different intro and outro. Um, But uh, you can get it from both places, regardless of what show that you subscribe to. Um, So we're going to jump right into that interview. Uh, Sean takes the wheel uh, for most of it, and you'll hear me pop it in now and then. Uh, But I do appreciate Sean for letting me... Uh, join him on this interview and uh, release it here on this feed. And to all you listeners, once again, I really do apologize that it's been so long. Uh, I want to get you another episode and I want to make more. Uh, These days, it's just, it's really difficult. Um, I'm going to ask you to trust me on that. A few of you know why, most of you don't. And I I really am sorry. But uh, new episodes will come. This show is not over. It's not done. It will continue. It will return I promise. But until that day comes, please sit back and enjoy Sean and I having a really fun conversation with David Mack right here on The Prime Direction. So a question that I always like to start with, just to get an idea of where our guest's uh, fandom falls, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? 
I grew up watching the original series in syndicated reruns in the 1970s. So I remember watching uh, episodes like The Man Trap and Galileo 7 uh, from a very young age. And uh, it just imprinted on me like a duckling imprinting on the first moving thing it sees. I imprinted on Star Trek. Right. Okay. Uh, which, so the, the, the original series, do you still consider that to be your series? Well, it was certainly my entry point into Star Trek fandom. I've grown up with Star Trek my whole life uh, since, you know, I, I grew up you know, watching the original series in, mm -hmm. in reruns for years and years. And then saw the uh, Star Trek, the motion picture when it first came out in theaters. And so I grew up with those characters and mentally part of my mind has been living in the Star Trek universe since I was a child, I was one of those guys who in the seventies, you know, as, as a kid and even into my teen years, I had that great cutaway poster of the refit enterprise from the movies mm -hmm. where they did the cutaway view. So you could see all the interior decks and you could see where everything was inside the ship. And so as a result, you know, mentally I could move through the interior of the ship as if it were a real place that I had actually visited. Um, so for me, yeah, the original series, that to me is the the heart and soul of Trek. That was where I learned what Trek is, what Trek means, um, and then of course, Next Generation debuted when I was starting my freshman year at NYU Film School. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a very different kind of Trek with a different philosophy in many ways, but uh, still very recognizably Trek. So throughout my young adulthood and through the formative years of my early writing career. I then had Next Generation and Deep Space Nine as my sort of primary points of focus. I think I had that same poster, but it was the Enterprise D. <laughs> Is writing what you've always wanted to do? Yeah, pretty much. I dreamed of writing books when I was a little kid. When probably around, uh, I mean, I grew up with books when my mom would have to run chores and errands on the weekend and she couldn't just drag me everywhere. She would drop me off at the town library and take me down to the kids section, which had a, a robust collection of both science fiction and fantasy and adventure, but also things like bound editions of Sunday comics. And I would yeah. I would just spend hours either reading the Star Trek logs by Alan Dean Foster uh, or I would read the Charlie Brown Sunday edition collections in like a big, huge hardcover bound uh, right. you know, volume. Um, I would read a book. There was a book I remember, I think the first full novel I ever read was The Space Eagle. Um, I would read, you know, adventure novels and uh, stories of pirates and things like that. And uh, so, yeah, I grew up wanting to see my name on books. I would sometimes, or I guess around the age of nine or ten, I would draw imaginary book covers with titles I would dream up out of thin air and then put my name on the cover, imagining myself as you know, an author someday. So that was pretty much the dream from childhood. And it took a weird detour starting around the age of 14 or 15 into screenwriting, which is what led me to film school. So I, I had my dalliance with television uh, from around 15 to around 25 or 30, somewhere in that range. And then when those doors seemed to close on me and I needed to find a new direction, that was when I kind of came back to the first love of writing books and uh, that worked out pretty well for me. Yeah. I, I have to say I can definitely relate to the, 
notion of uh, making fake book covers and putting your name on them. I, I'm still making fake book covers in Photoshop at, at age 40. So I, <laughs> I haven't really stopped yet. <laughs> and movie posters and things. Yeah. Right. So if, if you need someone to design the cover for your next book, <clears throat> uh, uh, I'm yeah, sadly, I don't, ma- I don't make those decisions, but <laughs> uh, one of your early writing credits for Star Trek was the, the deep space nine episode starship down. It's actually my very first professional fiction writing credit anywhere. What's the what was the writing process like on that show? Did you did you just go to them with the idea and then they gave you the thumbs up or thumbs down and then let you write the script or how, how did it go? That's a very long story. I'll try and give you the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> okay. Um, I had been trying to get in the door to write as a freelancer for Star Trek through most of Next Generation, and then after that show ended, I continued my efforts with Deep Space Nine, and there was some overlap between the two. They had an open-door submission policy where you could submit full-length scripts to the slush pile, and if you were lucky, you had maybe a 1 in 10,000 chance of making it out of the pile, which I never did. What eventually ended up happening was that I teamed up with a guy named John Ordover, who at that time was the editor in charge of the Star Trek novels at Simon and Schuster. He had an open invitation from the TV producers to pitch to deep space nine and to Voyager whenever he felt like he had something worth pitching from John's point of view. This really wasn't worth the effort because he had no experience writing for television and it would be like a dog chasing a car. He wouldn't know what to do with it if he caught it, but then he (laughs) teamed up with me. I had a degree in screenwriting, but no access to the producers. Well, you put us together, and that's chocolate meeting peanut butter. I will leave it to the audience to decide who was which. And then (laughs) John got us a pitch meeting. Uh, We had uh, spent a number of months prior to the pitch meeting honing our method of working as a team. I knew the Writers Guild rules, which were you pitch a story. uh, If they like it, you write an outline. From the point where the outline is written, you get called in to do a beat sheet or a beat breakdown where you – Break it down scene by scene, and you figure out where the act breaks are going to happen. This is the cold open before the opening credits. Right. This is where we go to credits. This is act one. This is where we go to commercial break one, and so on and so forth. And you break it down into a teaser in five acts. And once that beat sheet is locked, as they say, when the writer's room has agreed, all right, that's the structure of the episode, you then have two weeks to execute your first draft script. And so John and I practiced so that we would go through all the steps of the process just the way the TV guys would, uh, A, just to get our working method down and also to familiarize ourselves with the process. And then to make sure that from whenever we locked an outline that we could execute a good quality teleplay within two weeks. And we did it three times. We said, all right, now we're confident. John set up a pitch meeting. We developed a bunch of ideas that we thought might work for Voyager and some that we thought would work for DS9 based on where each show was narratively at that point and where all the various characters were in their development at that point. And we went in with a maybe you know anywhere from six to ten story ideas per show. We scheduled a pair of phone calls. The first was to Voyager. We pitched them a bunch of ideas. Most of them didn't hit, but one did. They liked it. We said, we have a bunch of DS9 spec scripts. Can we send you one as a writing sample, uh, you know, so that you can consider us for the script assignment? And Jerry Taylor, the executive producer, said, sure, that would be fine. So we sent her one of our spec scripts. A couple weeks later, we had our next phone call with DS9. We were on with, uh, I believe, Ira Stephen Bear, maybe Ron Moore. I can't remember. 
but one of those guys. And we made our pitches, and out of the six or eight that we pitched, two of them got their interest. One of them became Starship Down, and the other became uh, It's Only a Paper Moon three seasons later. Uh, and that was an idea where they loved the original pitch, but they weren't sure where it would fit within what they were doing. But they liked it enough that they put it in the let's come back to this folder. So the way it worked is we pitch our basic idea. You start when you're doing a TV pitch like this with the high concept. Uh, you know, you tell them the, the, basically what would be the TV guide log line for this episode. And for Deep Space Nine, uh, Starship Down, it was the defiant, uh, gets sunk into an alien ocean in the Gamma Quadrant and the crew has to go through a Poseidon Adventure, uh, mm -hmm. style crisis to get out of it. They were like, oh, that's interesting. Tell us more. How do we get in this situation? What are we doing out there? And then you pitch them the story. You tell it to them pretty much in a linear fashion. You hit the major beats, the major uh, dramatic turns. You try to keep their interest all the way through. You give them maybe a 30-second overview of the episode. Uh, the Defiant has gone to the Gamma Quadrant to meet with the Karma. They're negotiating a trade deal. But the Jemadar get wind of the meeting, and they attack the trade uh, agreement. They blow up the, gem the Karma ship. They cripple the uh, Defiant. The Defiant crashes down on this planet, sinks into an ocean. Now the environment is, you know, the, the ship is out of its environment. Instead of being in space where it belongs, it's underwater, it's under mm -hmm. pressure. The ship is flooding. The crew are cut off from one another, and everybody's struggling to survive. Meanwhile, the Jemadar are still hunting for us and are basically doing the equivalent of dropping depth charges. So it's like a classic submarine action movie where the sub has been hit. The crew is fighting to survive. The enemy is still trying to finish you off. Uh, and it's a basically a race against time and a race against an enemy. And they were yeah. like, that's great. All right, let's uh, let's develop that some more. But we might need to make some changes for TV. Uh, but let's uh, let's get a full outline on that one. And that was what eventually led to them. You know, we went through a number of revisions. It became a gas giant instead of, uh, you know, crashing them into an alien sea because water was too expensive to work with. Then we started talking about, you know, changing up the pairings, which characters do we want to pair off with which characters, um, and so on and so forth, to the point where they said, all right, this sounds really good. Uh, you know, they bought the story outline. They said, uh, we're going to have you guys out uh, to do the break. And the reason we got that call was that in the interim, Jerry Taylor at Voyager came down to Iris Stephen Bear and said, hey, I heard you bought a story from Mac and Wordover. And he said, yeah. And she handed him our spec script, which was a DS9 spec script, which, you know, he wasn't supposed to be looking at for guild rules, but she said, make an exception. It's really good. You might want to consider giving them a script assignment. He read the script and he agreed. And even though this was our first professional TV sale for either of us, we got the script assignment for our first sale, which almost never happens for a feeling. Mm, right. So based on our audition script, they gave us a scripting assignment. So, a few months later, around August, we went out, we did the break session where we go into the writer's room, we sit with the writers, we break it down into act-by-act act structure on a whiteboard. The writer's assistant is putting stuff up on the whiteboard. It's getting erased. It's getting changed. Scenes are being moved around. We're discussing, well, you know, do we want to introduce this character? Do we want that character? Uh, how do we want that scene to play out? So all these notes are getting bandied about. The story is getting reshaped, redeveloped in the room with the entire writing staff kind of throwing ideas out. Um, and then finally they say, all right, that's it. That's locked. They photograph the board. The writer's assistant types it up. They give us our typed copy. They email a copy to us. And from that point, the clock starts ticking two weeks from that day script is due. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So John and I, uh, you know, we enjoy L.A. for another day. We get on a flight. We go home. We go back to New York City where we both live. And we execute our script and we turn it in right on time two weeks later, maybe even a day early. I can't remember. And the most devastating words in the world are when you turn in your script and Hans Beimler, then the supervising producer on the show, said, oh, good, the script is here. Now the writing can begin. (laughs) He wasn't kidding. That thing went through five full uh, revisions by Rene Echeverria, uh, who was the producer in charge of managing the episode from uh, freelance script delivery through production. And they put him through five absolutely grueling rewrites on that thing, none of which he's credited for on screen. Uh, for various political reasons, guild reasons, uh, because as a writer-producer on the show, uh, he was only allowed to have his name on so many episodes per season, and he wanted to save his on-screen credit for episodes that he originated. Uh, so uh, even though that episode says written by David Mack and John J. Ordover, it was mostly written by Rene Echeverria. Well, what is it? What does it feel like? I mean, I, I know it's a it's a months long process, but what does it feel like uh, to see those characters doing and saying things that you wrote for the first time? It's very exciting to feel. Actually, not even to feel to know that John and I made contributions to the canon. Um, that are going to live on after us that, you know, Star Trek as this force of nature, this social phenomenon is going to be around a very long time. I suspect it will outlive us quite easily. And those contributions to the canon, uh, have probably been seen by millions of viewers over the years, far more than have ever read any of my Star Trek novels. And while I'm proud of the work I've done for both the Star Trek novels and the show, it just, there's no beating the fact that, when you make a contribution to something like this, especially in this case, something that I have loved my entire life, uh, to get to contribute a lasting something, a la- to make a lasting contribution to it uh, was one of the most rewarding moments of my career. Scott, you kind of put your hand over your heart when he mentioned uh, only a paper moon <laughs> a second ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, uh, in part because I, I just love that episode it uh wasn't all that long ago when i was doing my most recent uh rewatch of ds9 so uh, that one's still fresh in the memory um obviously now i know sean you have uh, a question about this later on on the list so um forgive me for jumping ahead a little bit but uh, obviously the episode it's only a paper moon is going to be resonating with a lot of star trek fans uh these days probably for uh, quite a while yet to come uh, in light of the recent passing of Aaron Eisenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I, I have to say it's, it's always sad when uh, a member of the, uh, Star Trek family of, of actors and characters, uh, passes away. This seemed to sweep across the internet and the fandom a lot stronger than I would have uh, expected. And that is in no way meant to disparage, uh, Aaron, but you just wouldn't expect, someone other than, you know, say a, a Nimoy level or a Shatner level uh, loss to get that kind of a, a huge outpouring of uh, fan uh, grief uh, as, as Aaron got uh, to the point where I, I made a, uh, uh, a combat, a, a Voyager era 
com badge that I had redesigned into a bit of a uh, kind of a memorial badge for him. Uh, Gray Slate with uh, you know his name and uh, um, uh, the years that he was born and, and that he was lost. Uh, and I had labeled it Aaron Eisenberg uh, Memorial, uh, I think, Memorial Badge. Um, and I, I shared that on Twitter mm-hmm. as a, a way to kind of pay tribute to him. And the next thing I know, there's like at least six people in my Twitter followers that are showing up in my mentions that have made that their avatar. Um, so that it felt to me like a, a small contribution that I could make to the honoring of his memory. And I know that there were a lot of people who scheduled a viewing of it's only a paper moon. Uh, so no matter where they were in the country, but amongst all the Star Trek fans that I follow and interact with on Twitter, so many of them sat down to watch that same episode all at the same time mm-hmm. uh, as, as a way to honor him. And, and when you mentioned uh, putting together the, uh, uh, the pitch for that story, mm-hmm. the one thing that I wondered was, I, un, unless I, I misunderstood what you were saying, you, you came up with that pitch, but it was a few years before the episode was actually made. Is that right? Well, again, this is a strange case of how TV development works. And before I get into all that, I want to say I think among the many reasons that Aaron's death hit the Star Trek fan community uh, so poignantly as it did was the fact that he was a relatively young man. He was only 50. He was recently married. Uh, he was always very engaged with the uh, the fandom on a personal level. He was very approachable. He was very personable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a result, I think he had built a very strong relationship on a personal level with wide uh, segments of fandom in the years since DS9 went off the air. So even though he was not what you would call a series regular, he was a recurring he was an integral part of the fandom community. And I think the fact that an episode like It's Only a Paper Moon, uh, which really showcased what a wonderful actor he was and the tremendous range and vulnerability that he brought to that role, only cemented his place in the Star Trek firmament. Uh, As for how the episode came to be when it was pitched three years before it was aired, this is a case of how TV development works. What we originally pitched in 1995 was a story idea called Everybody Comes to Quarks. Now, the title is a play on the, uh, a twist on the original name of the play from which the movie Casablanca was derived, Everybody Comes to Ricks. So we have Everybody Comes to Quarks, and the general premise is due to a bizarre confluence of technical malfunctions and overlapping alien holidays, every single place, every business on the promenade is closed except Quarks, and every replicator on the station is broken except for those in Quarks. So if you want to get something to eat for one day, everybody comes to Quarks. (laughs) So the idea was we pitched them an episode where the entire episode, every shot, every scene, every moment, except for, you know, establishing shots of the station to show passage of time, which are, you know, just stock shots they pull whenever they need. The whole episode was going to be filmed on one set, which means you only have to light one set for the week. That's a remarkable time saver. Part of what we were trying to do was pitch what are called bottle shows, where you use only standing sets, minimal effects, you go character-focused. You try to save them as much time and money as they as you can as a freelancer so that they can take the money they save producing your episode 
and then dump it into an effects-heavy action episode for their big finale, and remember fondly that you made it possible. And so <laughs> this story, which starts out with a bunch of, you know, it's sort of like an episode of Cheers, but it's an hour long, with all these different storylines going on in Quarks. They said, we love it. We just don't have a place for it right now, but we're going to come back to it. And it was in the let's come back to this folder for about three years. And they would keep coming back and they'd say, all right, can we work it in here? Can we connect it to this episode? Can it fill in between these two? And they would say, no, because of this and that, and we can't use this, and we would want to use that. And so they said, all right, well, make a few notes, and we'll come back to it. And they kept doing this. And it's got our names on the front of the folder. You know, Mac and Ordover pitched this story. We, we keep coming back to it. And they keep adding things and taking things away. Until finally, through the course of three years of conversation, we get into season seven. And they realize that this is the basic template for an episode that they want after Siege of AR-558 to deal with Nog and his recovery after combat. But they don't know what the story's about. But they also know that for season seven, they have dumped a ton of money into the Vic Fontaine Las Vegas sets. And they're trying to amortize that cost across as many episodes as they can. So they go, okay, well, instead of making it quarks, we'll make it as many of the Vic Fontaine sets as we can. Uh, we'll go effects light. We'll do this and that and the other thing. And it'll be focused on Vic and Nog. All right, great. Send it back to Mac and Order over and have them rewrite. So we get this call in 98 and they're saying all right we're finally buying that episode you pitched three years ago we went hey that's great they go we just have a few little changes and we need you to rewrite the outline to fit we said okay what are the changes and they spell it out for us we said all right so from what we pitched nothing remains and now you've got a story <laughs> about nog doing his medical recovery in the las vegas hollow suite with vic fontaine why and ron moore said what are you asking me for? It's your story. <laughs> we went, all right, when do you need the rewrite? He says, can you have it for us in three days? We went, of course we can have it for you in three days. <laughs> uh, and we says, just one question. Why is Nog doing his rehab in the hollow suite? You tell us. It's your story. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, Ron. Uh, thank you very much. We, we'll have an outline for you in three days, and that's great. And we hang up the phone, and John and I look at each other. We're like, what the hell happened? <laughs> why did they even call they could have written this without us we never would have known and we asked them that years later we said why did you even call us back you guys could have written that in house without coming back to us why come back to us they said because it's a point of honor we went through this development process and we got here by developing from your original pitch it took three years but at the end of the day it was okay this is where we're at we need a new outline whose name is on the front of the folder Mac and Ordover all right, send it back to Mac and Ordover. Yeah. And it was just the the honor of the whole thing really always impressed me. So John and I went, we did some research and uh, did research into post-traumatic uh, stress disorder and uh, into combat-related injuries that happened to soldiers in times of war, how soldiers deal with losing limbs. Uh, and I also drew from some personal experience, which was that when I was 21 years old, I was a passenger in a car uh, on 4th of July, we were heading out. We were all in our car sober. We were heading out to go to a liquor store to get some booze and go back to a party. As we were going through a four-way intersection, a drunk driver blew through the stop sign going the other way, broadsided us, put us into a telephone pole, 
Uh, everybody in our car injured. I was in physical therapy for months learning to walk again. Wow. And at the age of 21, that's a really kind of a sobering moment to realize, you know, you came inches away from, uh, you know, from death, basically, yeah. to realize how close you came and how short life is. Uh, so I was drawing from the fact that at the age of 21, I got my wake-up call, which was to say, you are fragile. You can be injured, you can be hurt, and you can be killed, and you need to keep this in mind as you go through the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And I realized that's what Nog is going through. He has had his illusion of invulnerability taken away. A young man, especially at that age, likes to think of themselves as invulnerable and immortal. I'm going to live forever, and nothing can hurt me. Nog has had both of those things taken away. He's watched many of his friends shot down around him, so he knows immortality is off the table. And now he's had his leg blown off, and he realizes if they can shoot my leg off today, they can shoot my head off tomorrow. Mm-hmm. This is not a joke anymore. I'm, in, I'm I'm a young man, but I'm in a war, and I've just had a I've, I've had a small taste of what's waiting for me out there, and I don't want it back. And everybody's calling me a hero. I'm no hero. I'm a dummy who got his leg blown off. That's all I am. And as a result, you know, so we poured all of this personal experience and all this research into this episode. And as a result, over the years, you know, it's been over 20 years since that episode aired. I have gotten so many wonderful emails from soldiers who lost limbs in combat and were watching DS9 during their rehab at places like Walter Reed and other military VA hospitals. I've gotten letters from military chaplains uh, who have had to counsel soldiers who have been through limb loss and traumatic combat injury. I've gotten emails from soldiers who are watching like doing binge watches of DS9 while they're on deployment in the Middle East and elsewhere uh, and had friends who have been lost to combat or have been shipped out with uh, career ending injuries. And they tell me how this episode hits home for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just been incredibly rewarding to know that this uh, story that John and I wrote and what's ironic is the episode follows our story outline almost beat for beat. Unlike uh, Starship Down, which went through many, many rewrites after it left our hands and turned into something that was very much di- very different from what we had originally started with. It's only a paper moon, really only went through one or two drafts, and then it was in front of the cameras. And it tracks to our outline almost perfectly. So more of what John and I actually wrote, including actual words that were in our outline, made it onto screen in It's Only a Paper Moon, even though we only have the story by credit, and it says teleplay by Ron Moore, more of our actual work, more of what John and I put on the page made it into that episode than into Starship Down. So in many ways, It's Only a Paper Moon, uh, although I don't have the possessory written by credit on it, I feel... Uh, much more connected to that episode, much more of me is in it and a little bit of my pain and a little bit of my realization of the shortness of life is what uh, went into that story. And then to see Aaron Eisenberg bring that to life on screen was really just kind of amazing. Yeah. And in that, you know, the, uh, what we left behind documentary, um, he was brought to tears just talking about it because the the same thing that you just said where uh, he, he, he would get letters from injured soldiers that would tell him how much that episode meant to him. And, I, and he was, he was really proud of uh, being, being part of an episode like that. Well, he was amazing in that. And I think part of it is that because he was born with um, 
certain medical issues that followed him through his life, he was no stranger to pain, to suffering, uh, and to a sense of his own mortality. And I think that the fact that he lived so close to his own pain and his own mortality, even as a young man, really gave an authenticity to his performance. He was able to live that truth and channel it and make it part of his performance. Uh, and in a way, I think he brought that story to life in a way that few, if any other performer could have done. I want to ask you about, I want to talk to you about your, uh, Star Trek novels. Sure. Um, so the, the first couple of novels that you wrote for Star Trek, they were part of the, a time Two series that came out several years ago. And, um, they were, it was a, it was like a nine novel series that different authors wrote different parts of it. Did they come to you and ask you to, to take part in that or, or, or how did that work? Well, the way I got invited to that was that I had been writing for the ebooks, uh, Star Trek, uh, Starfleet Corps of Engineers, also known as SCE, mm-hmm. uh, and later retitled Corps of Engineers. Um, I'd written my first book for Star Trek, which was the Starfleet Survival Guide. And then off of that, they said, all right, you can finish a book. And they started having me pitch to the novellas, the monthly ebook novellas for SCE. And I wrote, uh, I co-wrote my first one of those, uh, with Keith R.A. DeCandido. That was called Invincible. And that was a two-parter. And then I wrote my own two-parter called Wildfire. And that came out, I believe, in January of 2003. And it got really great critical reception, great fan reviews. It sold really well. And on the strength of that, uh, when one of the authors who was originally going to be working on the A Time to miniseries dropped out, leaving a gap uh, at book seven and eight, John, my writing partner on the Star Trek episodes, contacted me and said, would you be interested in writing a pair of back-to-back paperback uh, full-length novels? You know, because he says I-, I would need them relatively fast. I mean, he approached me, I guess, in summer of 2003 and he said you know we're going to need them by you know both books written by april and uh, i said sure you know i i I would be interested in that i would do that so i was approached by them Uh, i don't know for certain who it was who dropped out of the spot seven and eight but i came in as a replacement player kind of late in the game and I had to catch up and find out what everybody else was doing around me. I had to find out what stories and story arcs and character arcs had already been spoken for in the first two books, then the, you know, one and two, three and four, five and six. So I had three duologies ahead of me. And then I had to keep in mind whatever Keith R.A. DeCandido was planning for book nine, the wrap up volume. And I had to find something to do that was uniquely mine that fit the Star Trek mold that fit the miniseries and the overarching story that it was trying to tell, right. uh, but that also did not trample on or uh, reiterate anything that anybody else was already doing. So there was a lot of back and forth. There were a lot of meetings. It helped that at the time, almost everybody involved in it, except for John Bornholt, who I believe was writing books one and two, 
most of us were based in New York City. And at that time, we were having weekly lunches together. Every Wednesday, we would meet at the same diner. And as a result, you know, every Wednesday, we would talk shop and we would trade uh, crew crew lists and manifest for, you know, characters we'd established as serving on the Enterprise in what department, what rank, what species, what gender, mm-hmm. uh, what backstory do we have on each of these people. And so we would coordinate all this detail. And I started developing the story and I got tons and tons of pushback from Star Trek licensing, from the uh, the licensing people who control the approvals, because they just thought that I was going too far afield, the book was going to be too dark, it was going to be too violent, and because I hadn't written a full-length novel for Star Trek up to that point, I'd only written some novellas, uh, they weren't sure they could trust me with something as dangerous, as sensitive as what I was proposing. And so there were a lot of arguments over the outlines, over the direction of the story, over what I could and couldn't do. Um, and so I lost a ton of time in arguments with licensing. Uh, I mean, literally months of time were lost that I should have been writing the book. And so finally, by the time where I finally got my outline and was uh, good to go, I was now dealing with other issues. It was like it was now fall of uh, 2003. I had gotten engaged over the summer. I was at that point, just as I'm starting to gear up and try to get to work writing these two novels, I'm moving out of an apartment I've lived in for 12 years to move in with my then fiance, now wife, uh, moving to a different part of the city. We move within a week of the move. One of my cats dies. During the move, I lost my notes for the book, like all my written, printed or handwritten notes in a notebook. Those all got lost. So I'm now back at square one trying to figure out what I'm doing without my notes. Um, all my stuff is in boxes. Uh, I'm planning a wedding. I'm planning a honeymoon. And I'm trying to write two novels back to back in record time when I've never written a novel before. So uh, it, this was a perfect recipe for stress and freak out. But somehow, even with all this heaped on me, I got it done. And I wrote these two books, which were uh, a pretty clear uh, allegory for the 2003 U.S. invasion and subsequent occupation of Iraq, uh, translated into Star Trek terms, with the Enterprise basically being sent to conquer this planet before the Klingons can, so that the Klingons don't find out that there's all sorts of Federation shenanigans that have been going on and are right. being covered up. And then, so that's the first book, A Time to Kill, which is very much like a Tom Clancy, high-velocity military techno thriller. And then what's fun about these two books for me is that the second book, A Time to Heal, is very different in style and tone. It's uh, darker. It's not a fast-paced thing. It's a slow burn. It's about uh, occupation as opposed to high-tech warfare. It's about insurgency. It's about being an unwelcome superpower occupying a place you don't understand. Uh, it's about asymmetrical warfare, about guerrilla combat, uh, about how forces that can't match you on a technological level will simply resort to more brutal uh, insurgency methods because they have no choice. Um, and as a result, you know, uh, I put these poor characters through meat grinders. Uh, to this day, there's a, a friend of Keith R.A. DeCandido, a guy named George Carmona. We named one of the Enterprise security officers in this miniseries after George. And I guess in books five and six, which were written by Bob Greenberger, 
time to love, time to hate. Mm-hmm. He had Carmona, you know, defending Picard through thick and thin, through riots, through civil uprest. Uh, he gets wounded. He goes through all these incredible adventures and somehow comes out alive on the other side, defying the red shirt myth. And then in a time to heal, I have a scene where it's it's playing out. It's like it's light, witty banter. It's Starfleet officers, you know, joking over lunch. And the scene ends with a, a an improvised explosive device goes off and kills them all. George Carmona, after surviving every indignity Bob Greenberger could throw at him, I kill the man while he's eating lunch. <laughs> and I'm like, that's war, baby. War is yeah. cool. <laughs> Now, Scott, I know you've you've read some of uh, David's uh, Section Thirty One stuff, right? Um, no, so I sometimes I lose track of some of the books that I've read because most of them were read years ago, and I just recently tried to get back into the swing with um, uh, <clears throat> uh, Michael's Death in Winter um, yeah, Resistance Q and A. The only se- I think the only Section Thirty One novel that I have read was way back in. Uh, I think it was Abyss. That was the Deep Space Nine Section Thirty One book. If I remember, yeah, the right. one with Bash- the one with Bashir. It was uh, I think it was David Weddle uh, and Jeff Lang wrote that together. I believe. Yeah, I, I, D- David Weddle. That that sounds familiar. That was and like I said, that that was that was a couple of years back. Um, but I that think actually, that's yeah, that, that actually starts the there. that starts the Bashir Section Thirty One story arc that I continued. In uh, Section 31, Disavowed, but also in my novel, Ceremony of Losses, uh, and which I brought to a head in my Section 31 novel, Control, where Bashir essentially – oh, and also in uh, another Bashir-focused novel of mine, Zero Sum Game. Those four books of mine follow up on Abyss and basically with Abyss constitute like a five-book-long Bashir versus Section 31 uh, sub-thread within the Star Trek continuity. Mm-hmm. I think I've read up on a lot of the events of that uh, uh, sequence of novels, but uh, Abyss is the only the only one of those books that I read. I think the rest has just been, you know, reading up mostly on, on memory beta because I I have this hunger for all the Star Trek story that I can get, but I don't always have the time to read the books, so I cheat <laughs> and I go to memory beta. <laughs> Did, is is it a coincidence that uh, Discovery Season 2 had an AI called Control? No. no. Basically, <laughs> what happened there was they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do with their Section 31 arc, and my friend Kirsten Beyer, who is also uh, a very accomplished Star Trek novelist, uh, and she was on staff as a staff writer Season 1 and as a story editor for Season 2 of Discovery. Um. She was telling them, you know, in the room about some of the things we had done in the book. She wasn't doing it to feed them ideas for them to regurgitate. She was merely trying to use it to illustrate the sort of possibilities and the things that we had previously explored to sort of jog them in fruitful directions. Mm -hmm. But once she told them about the idea of a malevolent AI, or I guess they were tinkering with the notion of an AI calling the shots, and she said, well, you know, we've done that in the books. Dave Mack actually did that. Uh, Section 31, Control, he had a malevolent artificial superintelligence named Control, which you know, uh, was, you know, invading and controlling the Internet of Things and tapping into conversations and manipulating people and running 31 and occasionally burning it to the ground when it, when it needed to burn it to the ground for the sake of appearances. And this apparently tickled their fancy so much that they just ran with it 
and incorporated it into the show, uh, you know, without uh, bothering to thank me or acknowledge me in any way. Wow. <laughs> I was I going to ask you if they at least gave you a, gave you a, a, a story credit or something. Nope. No, I mean, technically, they're not really required to. Uh, the books are all created as work for hire, which yeah. means that from the moment I agree to write one, everything I create uh, in story outline or in manuscript form is uh, proprietary work product that belongs to Star Trek, lock, stock, mm-hmm. and barrel. So they own the copyright. They own the contents. Any original characters I've created for my Star Trek novels belong to Star Trek, which means that if the shows want to use them, they are free to use them. They are contractually not required to acknowledge uh, where they get it from. They're not required to acknowledge me as the source. They're not required to compensate me. Uh, they have no fiduciary or uh, legal obligation to me in that regard because that's the nature of work for hire. Mm-hmm. That said, that's also true of a lot of the work that many Marvel comic writers have done over the years, mm-hmm. creating characters that then became the property of Marvel, creating storylines that became the property of Marvel. And yet, if you look at the new Marvel movies, very often in the special thanks sections, you'll see the names of those writers and artists and other creators who created characters that they chose to use, uh, you know, who created storylines that they chose to appropriate for the films. Those guys may not have gotten paid, but they at least got acknowledged. They, somebody acknowledged, yes, you, 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 we built on your work and thank you. It would have been nice to see a special thanks. Yeah. Some, sometimes they even put those guys on the screen. I, I saw the, crea- the creators of the Winter Soldier were, were in the, in the lab in that Captain America film when they first introduced the character. So. Yeah. And uh, some and some of them got invited to the red carpet premieres. Like my buddy Scott Edelman uh, got invited to uh, I think it was the Captain Marvel premiere because he created uh, I think the the character that was played by Gemma Chan uh, in the movie that was one of his creations from his days uh, writing Marvel comics back in the seventies. You know that's work that was done forty years ago, but they still remembered him and honored him enough to say, hey, why don't you come to the premiere as our guest, um, whereas, you know, control that came out in 2017 and they lifted it in 2018. It's like the, the ink was still wet. I'm like, really, really? (laughs) They could have, they could have at least cast you as Admiral Mac is what I'm saying. (laughs) I would have, again, I would have been happy if someone had just thought to put a special thanks to David Mac for, you know, the use of control or for creating control. That's all I would have asked. A special thanks. No money. I, I don't need money. You know, well, actually, I do need money, but I would understand that I'm not entitled <laughs> nice, to money. Yeah. I would understand I'm not entitled to money. And obviously, story credits are strictly controlled by the Writers Guild and mean specific things. So I wouldn't have asked for that. But there's nothing that stopped them uh, from a special thanks credit uh, except uh, them. Right. Yeah. I talked to Michael Jam Friedman uh, a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. on a podcast. And when he started writing Star Trek novels, the series was still on the air. Very different so, time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so there was a there was there was a lot of a lot of rules as far as these are the toys, this is the sandbox, you can play with them, but you have to put everything back where they were uh when you're done. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't kill characters, you can't marry characters. Things like that. That was the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. And, but when, when you started writing, the series was over. You were in movie territory. You're on the Enterprise E. 
and uh, you've got a little more, a little more freedom. So who who calls the shots? Who tells you what you can and can't do? Licensing the people who yeah. own the copyright. Okay. What changed between when Mike was writing in the '90s and when I was writing about a decade later is that, as you pointed out, the series had finished up their run on TV. When he was writing, Next Gen was still on the air. Uh, DS9 was just getting started. Voyager was still getting started. As a result, when you're writing books for a series that is still producing episodes and is constantly adding to the canon and establishing new facts about the characters, you have to be very careful to color inside the lines and not alter the status quo. You've got to be careful that your book slots into a specific point in the continuity. But you can be as careful as you want, and there's still a risk that some minor detail you establish, no matter how trivial it might seem, it could get contradicted by a future installment of canon. And that's just uh, one of the risks you take when you create work for hire for properties that are still uh, in first run, still in new creation. Uh, as we like to say, you know, the rule at that time was the book that the author writes must be consistent with canon at the time the manuscript is executed. Once the manuscript is out of editing uh, and is into production and layout and is being prepped for printer, if something happens at that point, uh, an episode establishes a fact that contradicts one, one or more minor elements of the book, you're not going to pay to revise an entire book that late in its production process over a few minor discontinuities. If they blow the whole book out of the water, then maybe you pull it, but you try not to. Uh, the difference was that when I came along, by the time I was writing uh, fiction for Star Trek, it was already 2003. Enterprise was close to done. They were in maybe season two or season three at that point. They didn't have a lot longer. And we were trying to avoid stepping on their toes, so we were working mostly in 24th century. Star Trek Nemesis came out, I believe, in 2002, 2003, something like that? Yeah, yeah I, think too, I think it was 2002. Yeah. All right, so Nemesis came out in 2002. And based on its critical reception, its box office numbers, and other things we were hearing behind the scenes, we had no reason to think at that time that the next-gen characters were ever going to be seen on screen again. There was no reason to think they were going to make any more next-gen movies. There wasn't any reason to think they were going to make any more TV series with those characters in that time period. And as a result, starting around 2003, with the uh, decision to go forward and create the A Time 2 books... Part of the impetus for that was they wanted to do originally 12 books, and they scaled it back to nine. But the premise was we want to find out what's been going on during the year immediately before Nemesis, because Nemesis introduced a lot of status quo changes for the characters. Suddenly we find out Riker is leaving to go take command of the Titan. He's finally decided to settle down and marry Troy. Uh, things are finally starting to happen, uh, you know, all over the place. Uh, why now? Why have these sudden changes come now? What spurred these changes? So that was the uh, genesis of the uh, Time 2 books, was to say, in the year immediately before Nemesis, what happened to these characters that altered the trajectories of their lives? And once we finished with that series and we started building books going forward in the post-Nemesis era, realizing that we were now going forward into uncharted waters, suddenly the writers and the editors had to start asking questions like, well, are we only going to write books that take place before Nemesis? 
do we have to go back and only write books that take place during run of series? Or if they are done with these characters, can we take control and start advancing the narrative and start establishing alterations to status quo? Can we start changing the shape of these characters' lives and putting them on new paths, introducing new adventures, new continuing storylines? What can we do? And that was, you know, what came out of that eventually was a discussion with licensing about how much creative freedom we were going to be allowed because the editors wanted to do this. Certainly, uh, there was a desire, you know, they were already doing the DS9 relaunch under Marco Palmieri that started in 2000, 2001. Um, but the idea to spread that approach beyond the DS9 books to then continue it with the Voyager books, uh, you know, post finale going back to the Delta quadrant to continue it with next generation, expanding their lives, broadening the canvas of the 24th century. And then the idea to eventually start weaving them all together that Mm -hmm. took place solely over the course of about three or four years, starting in around 2004 after we saw the great sales and great critical reception on a time Two. We said, well, between this and the fact that New Frontier has been a huge success running now for six, seven years at that point, it seems like there's an appetite out there among fandom, among the readers, for new narrative that pushes boundaries and doesn't use a reset button. Why don't we test the waters on that? Eventually, the folks at CBS Television who control the license uh, said, okay, small steps first, let's try it out, see how it goes. And so they just started testing the waters and putting out a few books and seeing how fans reacted. And that was what eventually led to uh, sometime around 2006 or so, the editors approached me and said, all right, the experiment's been going really well. We want to try something really big, major status quo changer, which will get people's attention, big event uh, trilogy. And they showed me a picture from their Ships of the Line book. It was the image of the uh, NX-01 Enterprise crashed in a desert, sort of like the uh, you know image, I guess, from... Uh, there's some famous image of a plane crashing in the desert, and it was based on that. Yeah. Um, and they said, all right, the caption on it, it shows people in DS9 uniforms and a runabout, little figures milling about this wrecked starship in the desert. And the caption said that, you know, lost for more than 100 or 200 years or whatever, the uh, hulk, the husk of the uh, NX-01 was discovered on this planet in the Gamma Quadrant. No one knows how or why it got here. And apparently this generated tons of fan interest and emails. And so the editor showed me this picture and they said, can you write an entire epic trilogy starting with this image as the inspiration and build something from this that incorporates this? Not being a fool, I, of course, said, yes, of course I can do that. I had no idea (laughs) how I would do that. But, of course, you always say yes when you're offered an epic trilogy. So I said, yes, of course I can do that. Let me get to work and throw some pitches at you. That was the conversation that eventually led to 2008's Star Trek Destiny trilogy. And that was where we blew the doors off of the very concept of using a reset button in Star Trek fiction. We altered the trajectory of the Star Trek universe in the literary, uh, you know, shared continuity. We altered certain characters' lives. We killed certain characters off. 
we changed the shape of the Federation. We re, you know, uh, we, we altered the balance of political power throughout the quadrant. And we started a whole slew of new storylines for Voyager, for DS9, for TNG. We spun off a couple of whole new series, Typhon Pact, Aventine, Titan. Uh, and it all just sort of, uh, sprung out of there. I mean, Titan had sort of started before that, but Titan was really sort of launched in a new direction after Destiny. And Destiny was really where all the product lines, all the book lines converged. Massive big event, final civilizational showdown between the Federation and the Borg. Time travel, uh, you know, epic destruction, the Alpha and Omega of the Borg. We see how they were created. We see what their final fate is. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Characters' lives are altered forever. And that thing sold huge. I mean, gangbusters mm-hmm. huge. I, I still collect wonderful royalty checks every six months because of that series. <laughs> and it's been out for, you know, over 10 years now. And I'm, I'm just, uh, that was what pretty much changed the game for the books. But now the game is shifting back because Star Trek Picard is taking us back, uh, to right. that universe. And it's going to be establishing all sorts of new canon details about the late period of the t- late 24th century. Uh, and it's almost guaranteed, according to my friend Kirsten, that none of it is going to match up with what we've done in the book. So uh, this grand, at this point, 15 or 16 year literary experiment that we've been working on uh, is going to be winding down pretty soon. Well, hopefully they'll do what Star Wars is doing and still pull certain elements from the books and 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 use those. But hopefully they'll do like Star Wars and actually give some credit to <laughs> where credit is due. But I wouldn't count st- on either one of those things happening. <laughs> <laughs> you're still you're still kind of building on Destiny, right? Because your new your new book. I, I went to the bookstore. I'll I'll admit this. I went to the bookstore. I bought Collateral Damage, and I haven't had time to finish it. I've read like the first three chapters. So, uh, but, um, picture me shaking my head right now. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. Um, you, uh, but you're, it still kind of builds off of destiny because they're, uh, without giving anything away. I mean, it's the starting point of the book is drastically different from the TV series. Oh yeah. Where, where, where Picard is. And, uh, and all of that has been things that have happened in books along the way. So you're still able to kind of build off of that. Do you have books planned? I, let, I want to let, give you a chance to talk about your new book. Do you have more books uh, planned after that? Uh, not at the moment. In fact, I'm not, I'm not currently under contract for any Star Trek books. I am at the moment working as a creative consultant on two upcoming Star Trek animated TV series. Uh, the first one is called Lower Decks. People have already mm-hmm. seen some, uh, advertisements and promo images for that. They released some of that at San Diego. The other one, its title has not been publicly announced yet. Uh, all that's uh, really been said about it in public by uh, CBS uh, so far is that it is being produced by the Hageman brothers, who are best known for Ninjago and also for doing the story for the first Lego movie. Uh, they are producing the series for Nickelodeon. And uh, I'm working on that one, and I'm working on Lower Decks. Uh, they're both going to be fantastic in different ways. Uh, so I'm very excited. Excited to have people see that. And that's a case where I am going to be credited on screen in the closing credits as, you know, either creative consultant or consultant. Um, and so that, that's a pretty good thing. 
as far as collateral damage, the reason why obviously Picard is in a different place than what you see in the Picard trailer is they're in two different time periods. Uh, Star Trek Picard is set in like 2399, like right before the end of the 24th century. The book takes place at the beginning of like 2387. It's 12 years earlier. So uh, it would make sense that he would be in a different place than where you see him in the series. The series is set uh, many years later than where we currently are in the literary continuity. But it's going to, uh, I've been assured, the series is going to establish details about things that have transpired uh, in those intervening 20 years since we last saw Picard. Uh, and we're going to be finding out uh, that those events probably just don't line up with things that we've been doing in the books. As far as the new book, yeah, it does owe a lot to the Destiny trilogy. The, the entire current book line owes a lot to the Destiny trilogy. That's pretty much the nexus point from which the shared literary continuity uh, derives starting in 2008. Everything converged there in 08, and everything has diverged from there since. Uh, but there are, I allude to events that occurred in the Destiny trilogy, facts that were established in the Destiny trilogy serve as the narrative foundation for this book. But some of what goes on in this book, in terms of the reason Picard has been recalled, why he's been recalled to Earth, why he's on trial, um, this goes back to my first two full length paperback novels, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal. The events that took place in that book and Picard's role in them are the reason he's on trial now. Uh, in terms of story time, it's only maybe six years later for him. I think those events occurred in like 2379. Maybe it's seven years. But, uh, you know, for him, it's only a handful of years later. For readers, it's 15 years later. Those books came out in 04. It's now 19. So 15 years ago, these two books came out. And only now, 15 years of our time later, and seven years of story time for Picard, he's finally having to pay the piper for what happened in those two books. And it also builds on all the stuff that I did with Bashir, uh, going all the way back to my novel Zero Sum Game, which I think came out in 2010. Uh, so we've got Zero Sum Game, we've got Ceremony of Losses, we've got my two uh, Star Trek Section 31 novels, Disavowed and Control. They all play into this narrative, the the fall of Section 31, the exposure of its secrets, uh, but also the Borg invasion and the effect that it had on the Quadrant, and then this coupled with the you know events uh, related to A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal, which grew out of the Dominion War. It's all of Star Trek history. It's like the weight of history is now this gigantic wave that is collapsing on Picard, and all he can do is stand there and take it. Right. I wanted to ask you one other thing, that, and this is kind of going back to what you said about discovery borrowing, you know, ideas for control and things like that, because a couple of years ago they tapped you to write the first discovery novel. Yes. And how, first of all, how does it come about? Uh, how, how do you work on a novel that you've not even had a chance to be able to see how the characters are going to play out on the screen yet. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming they're just giving you some scripts and some uh, character uh, biographies and things like that, and you have to work off of that to create a story. It was a little different than that. Originally, I was brought in. They thought it was going to be a short turnaround. Um, I was asked to do a story by uh, Brian Fuller that would 
incorporate a you know a, a tie-in between the original series and Discovery. Now, what happened was that they thought it was all going to have to happen very fast over a period of you know, a few months, and then the show ended up being delayed and it got retooled because they had to let Brian Fuller go. And as a result, uh, I was in the loop creatively on this show from the very beginning. So I was seeing uh, discussions that were you know going on in the writer's room. I was being kept in the loop by Kirsten, my friend who was the staff writer on the show. I was seeing story documents. I was seeing proposals. I was seeing key art. Uh, I was seeing concept art, sketches, set designs, costume designs, weapon designs. Um, and then when they did finally get to the point where they were starting to execute the story, and they said, all right, this is the, the basic story for the pilot, which went through many revisions and iterations. Um, and they said, this is where we're going to go afterwards from episode three onward. At that point, I had a request in from Brian Fuller before he uh, left the show, which was do a crossover of the Shenzhou and its crew under Giorgio with the Enterprise under Pike. And I correctly interpreted that what he was really asking me to do was write a story about Burnham and Spock. So I developed uh, the story based on facts that they were establishing in roughly the first three to five episodes of Discovery. And I went through a number of outlines, a number of proposals. I had to have them approved not only by my editor at Simon & Schuster, but also by Kirsten, who was acting as the tie-in liaison for Discovery, and then also by the folks at CBS Licensing, who were vetting it uh, on a wider basis for Star Trek in general. So I had three levels of approval as opposed to the usual two. Um, And while I was doing this process, I'm also getting the scripts from the production department, I was on the regular script distribution list. So I'm seeing every script version. I'm seeing revised pages. And so when I'm catching stuff in the scripts that I know is wrong, either it's incorrect science or it's a Star Trek fact error or something like that, I flag it and I send my note to Kirsten Beyer and Kirsten Beyer would go back in the room and say, you know, well, Dave Mack caught this, you know, we should probably try fixing this. He pointed out that this and this. And so I ended up catching a lot of stuff through the course of season one on discovery. Uh, and one of the first things I needed to do to develop an outline and start working on my book well before the, you know, they had even started casting. I said, all right, I need to actually have names for the characters on the bridge. Like you guys in your pilot script, like up until like the very last couple of drafts, all it ever had was helmsman, science officer, right. weapon officer. <laughs> These people had no names, no faces, no personalities. And that might be fine, you know, in TV if these people are not considered terribly important to your plot at that time. But in a book, that doesn't work. In a book, these have to be people with names because when you're writing from the point of view of the character experiencing the scene, they know these people's names. They're not going to think helmsman, weapon officer, whatever. They're going to think, you know, helmsman, lieutenant, so and so. So I had to start assigning names, descriptions, backstories, uh, you know, little factoids that would just help me flesh out the characters on the page if I needed to shift to them for point of view at any point for any reason. And one of the things that Kirsten noted, she said, well, these are great bios. This is really cool stuff. Would you mind if I share it with the, the writing staff? I'm like, please be my guest. And that was how a number of the characters on the Shenzhou uh, ended up bearing names that I gave them, like people like Cameron Gant, uh, Kayla Detmer, 
the one they call Yanuzzi or Yanuzzi is supposed to be Januzzi, but nobody there knew how to pronounce Italian names, and they kept <laughs> they kept saying it Januzzi, and they thought it sounded too much like Jacuzzi. They would always laugh, and if anybody had bothered to ask me, I'd have said it's pronounced Januzzi. But nobody bothered to ask me, so they gave it this weird Swedish pronunciation for no good reason. <laughs> but, you know, I was trying to name the character after this guy I went to film school with, this old buddy of mine, and, you know, but they screwed it up, and, you know, that's what happens. But Kayla Detmer, uh, that name stuck. Cameron Gant stuck. A few other names I gave to minor characters stuck. And, you know, Kayla Detmer ended up becoming a series regular, uh, yeah. played, played by Emily Coots. Uh, which was really kind of cool. So, I mean, I actually got to name, you know, some of the canon characters and she got brought forward, not just from Shenzhou, she got brought up to Discovery proper. Um, so, you know, I, I got to name some of the characters. I got to have input. I got to, you know, do notes on the show. Um, but in terms of the story development, it was just a matter of, uh, since I hadn't seen any of the footage from the show before writing the book, I had to rely on my ability to read the scripts and ascertain the characters' voices and personalities based on what is in the script, based on the photos I've seen of the actors who have been cast to play them, and based on what I've seen of concept art that tells me the general tone, look, and feel. And so working from that, working from set designs, concept sketches, uh, actor bios, actor headshots, and then the scripts themselves, uh, I was able to ascertain the vocal patterns that differentiate Saru from Burnham, from Giorgio, etc. And as a result, the book actually tracks pretty closely uh, in terms of style, tone, and character voice with the show. It is probably the first time that a first novel based on uh, a first Star Trek novel based on a, a new Star Trek series has actually matched the series tone and voice of the show that it connects to. Uh, in the past, you know, past writers doing like the first next gen novel, the first DS nine novel, the first Voyager novel at best. They maybe had the writer's Bible and maybe, maybe a script if they were lucky, but usually not even that. And they usually didn't even have casting info. They just had what was in the writer's Bible, which is usually wildly inaccurate. Here's the fun part. <laughs> discovery didn't even have a Bible. There was no writer's Bible for discovery. I had, oh, wow. I had to write one. I, I created one just for the use of other tie-in writers, other Star Trek novelists that we could all contribute to, kind of like an offline wiki. But I, I created a, a Discovery <laughs> Novelist's Writer's Bible specifically because the show had never created one. So I created one. And uh, But as a result, you know, the, the lucky thing was is that it, it worked out. And my book, although some of the details that I was allowed to establish, the writer's room in Season 2 decided to trample on, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about. Just in terms of the, I mean, there's nothing I can do about that. I, right. I can't stop them from changing their minds. Uh, but in terms of just the tone, the style, and the voices of the characters, it's a better fit with the show than most first novels based on a show for Star Trek uh, have been in the past. Well, I know we're 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 over the time that I promised you that we would stop. So uh, <laughs> I wanted to uh, I want to I want to thank you again for joining us. This was a uh, this this was great. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And there you have it, folks. The one and only David Mack sitting down for a really fun conversation. Sean and I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Now, don't forget you can always reach out to us on Facebook by joining 
the Prime Direction Podcast Facebook group. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Prime Direct Pod or email us directly, PrimeDirectPod at CosmicPotato.com. If you're interested in being on the show, if you know someone that wants to be on the show, or if you just have some fun trivia questions that you would like to submit for the usual trivia contests that we have on the show, uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, always taking uh, new guests, new questions, new everything. Uh, new episodes coming soon, I promise. Stay tuned. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. I swear to God, that outro took like 14 takes. (laughs) 